Okay, we're live. Hey, everybody. Welcome to First Impressions, uh, the podcast where we discuss our love for Jane Austen, give a big middle finger at all those haters. I'm Kristen, and I'm here with Maggie. Hello. Welcome to some insanely high number of episodes. I think it's episode 20. Uh, you've been listening to us talk for maybe 40 plus hours of your life, which wow. I'm awed by and astounded by, and I hope you've enjoyed those 40 hours. Um, you guys need more hobbies. <laughs> get out. But you know what? You can. You can get out and do like I do when you go for your walk. You just stick in your headphones and you listen to a podcast. And there you, you go. Need better podcast. Getting some exercise. <laughs> you get some actual, uh, um, you know, structured, professionally produced podcasts. Um, you know, and uh, I, I realize, and you know, when I, we first started this, I was incredibly structured, and I still do a lot of work for the podcast, but I allow them to be more freewheeling, and we just kind of talk about whatever we want because people seem to like it, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Um, Although I will say that I think we get a lot of people who say that the Mansfield Park episodes might be their favorite. And you definitely put the most pre-planning into those because it's your favorite book. But we also had Kevin. Yes, we had Kevin and he is always a fan favorite. And one day, (laughs) you know, he has already signed on. He has already agreed to do a future podcast uh, and well, Kristen, all- we have to save that for the end. Yeah, that's all that's I'm going to say. That's our big reveal at the end of the episode. That's all I'm going to say right now. Uh, one thing, though, um, you know, one thing I I don't, this is funny and true. I hate podcasts. I never listen to them. It's agony for <laughs> me to edit my own podcast because I hate podcasts so much. I hate listening to pe- disembodied voices. I have to see somebody speaking. Um, so, so yeah, so thank you for listening to my podcast. The other thing I listen, I, I dislike about podcast is that when they start usually you can just skip the first 15 minutes because that's a whole lot of blah 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 chit chat personal stuff and they're not talking about the subject of the podcast and that makes me really angry uh, you mean what we're doing right now yes yes exactly because I'm a nutcase <laughs> and uh, to be honest when I edit our podcast I, we get if we get chatty at the beginning I'm chopping that crap like I'm a sushi chef oh wow and so get it get it out um but sometimes the edits are a little clunky too. Like if I go back and like listen to them again, I'm like, I like start a story. I'm like, oh, I went to the grocery store the other day. And then the next beat, I'm like, let's so let's talk, talk about, about the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. you'll be happy to know that I don't notice probably because I don't remember. It's kind of like when you're recording a podcast, it's like being in a play where afterwards the adrenaline is going and you have no actual memories of the recording. You said that to me before. Sometimes you're like, I don't remember saying any of this when I read yeah, it. It was just uh, plausible fun. deniability, Kristen. Plausible yeah. deniability. It's a good plausible deniability. Right. Yes. You just hopped up on adrenaline. You're not responsible for anything you say. So uh, well, let's get to it. No, no, no. We can't because you've had oh. promised me to, that I could sponsor our podcast. That's right. This, po- this podcast is not sponsored by Blue Apron or Casper or whatever company, stamps.com. That are always stamps.com. <laughs> This podcast, Ugh. and this is kind of this is kind of gauche. Uh, this podcast is sponsored by me. I um, have mentioned, I think, a couple of times that as another hobby, I write fiction. I don't want to really talk about that on this podcast because that's not what this podcast is about. I'm not trying to self-promote. I think that would be gauche. However, now that you've listened to 48 hours of delightfulness produced by me and Maggie, uh, I am going to tell you something. Um, so I have, uh, written a book, published it. It came out in 2015 
and it did well. I, um, it's a YA fantasy book. It did pretty well for being a small, self-published YA fantasy. I just wrote it, and then I put it up on Amazon for fun. I didn't try to, you know, to get it published. I don't know if I ever would have. Um, I, I did work with an editor, so it's a professional quality book. And my editor was very, very much in favor of trying to get it published. She's like, I think you can. So I say all this to tell you that it's not, because when people say self-published, they assume it's crappy. It's, it's not crappy. It's like a library quality book that's been edited, right? So all this to say that I'm not trying to get you to buy the book. I'm not trying to make money off of anybody. However, there has been a, a twist in that a audiobook narrator contacted me and said, I really like your book. I want to record an audiobook of it. And I said, you are more it's than welcome. Me. It wasn't me, just to let everybody it's know. It's not Maggie. It's a real life, you know, professional audiobook narrator. Are I'm you saying that I'm not a real life person, Kristen? No, you're not a real life narrator. I, I know mean, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, you, I guess we all narrate our, narrate our own lives, but you don't do My voices. internal monologue is rich. <laughs> Your internal, you don't have an internal monologue. Well, she's, a, she's an actress and she does voices for the characters, set it up. So I said, yes, you can do it, but you need to know you're not going to make any money. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not anybody. I have one self-published book. Point being, the audiobook came out and she has, you know, making an audiobook what she did was she's like, I'll just make it for free and then we'll split the royalties. So I feel terrible because she's going to make no money at all uh, unless I market this in some way. And so I've put a lot of energy into trying to get reviews for it, contacting different audiobook sites to get reviews. If you're interested in, you know, in getting a free copy of it, it would be a huge help to us to just have people listen to the audiobook and post a review of the audiobook because that drives sales. And so if you are interested, you can contact us and um, I will give you an, ace, an audio, audible download code. And if you'd like to know more about the book, because why would you do this if you didn't know what the book was? Um, it's a, um, I mean, Maggie has read it. It's a YA fantasy. It's super lighthearted. It's a set. It's not a sword and sandal. I mean, when I say fantasy, I feel people like, oh, you know, like it's really weighty. It's not. It's super comedic lighthearted, fun, an easy read. Um, I have uh, all of the reviews on Amazon. A lot of the people who have left positive reviews are people I don't know and who have no reason to be nice and, um, you know, are legitimate reviews. Kristen, like, you have to tell people what the book is called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I, I'll tell them once I convince them to, <laughs> to read it. No, I'm being, I'm being really long-winded about this because it's... It's, it's okay, it's you're going to cut it all out anyway. So. It's nerve-wracking to try to get it all out. So the book is called Goddess, and it involves Roman mythology. Well, let's say it's an alternate Roman mythology, yes, right? Well, an, like Roman mythology in an alternate Roman world. Well, right. So I'm lazy. So it's an alternate world. It's not Earth. It's not ancient Rome. However, I just did all my world building by stealing ancient Rome's mythology. And I, I think that's fun. I always liked ancient Roman mythology. Um, so the story is that there are um, three teenaged, what are called Vestal Virgins, which if you're into Roman mythology, uh, they worshipped the goddess Vesta. And in my story, they were told that the, uh, the, the goddess Vesta is actually a flame. And so they worship it in the temple of Vesta. And then in the very first page of the book, they're worshiping it. And one of the three Vestal virgins sees it sputter out. 
which is a huge deal because that's their goddess. And so suspicions are awakened in her mind. Like, is this even a real goddess? Is it just a lamp? You know, like, what are we worshiping? And that's when the story kicks off and they sort of discover their own um, abilities to, you know, have relationships with the gods and invoke the gods. Anyway, Maggie read it. Okay, I want to say two things. Can I say two okay. things? Yeah. First thing I want to say is that I read the book before it was published as Kristen was writing it. And it was so good, I had to ask her to just give it to me at the end when she was done because I couldn't stand waiting to have <laughs> her finish the rest of it. And the second thing I want to say is just that Kristen does a lot of work on this podcast, and I'm not going to try to sell you the book or the audiobook either, but I'll just say that she spends hours and hours and hours working on this podcast, and I don't do anything. And she's also written a book, and it's great, and it's fun, <laughs> and I couldn't put it down. That's all I'm going to say. Well, thank you. It's so Maggie much. approved. If you think that we have good taste in books, which hopefully you do because this is a Jane Austen podcast, so presumably you like Jane Austen, um, check out Goddess. Thank you so much. Um, and you'll never be able to find it if you just search goddess. I realize it's the most generic title ever. So let me tell you that I wrote under a pen name. My pen name is Callista Hunter. That's Callista with two L's, C-A-L-L-I-S-T, and then just Hunter. And it's goddess. And um, the audiobook is on Audible. You can read all the reviews on Amazon. Uh, don't read the first five-star review um, because like all self-published authors, that one's from my mom. Oh um, my god! <laughs> but the yeah. other ones, most of I'm the pretty other sure ones my are, mom wrote one too. Are legit. No, I don't think your mom wrote one. Most of the other ones are are legit. Yeah, that was. This is so much better than some stupid Blue Apron commercial. I swear to God, if I have to listen to another Blue Apron <laughs> commercial on a podcast, podcast, I'm just gonna like throw my iPod out the window. I know it's amazing to think people are making money off these things. It. It takes so much work, and that's you know not, not to talk about this forever. But this uh, woman made this audiobook. I happen to know how much time these things take, and I don't I don't have to make every word perfect in our podcasts. I do edit them, but you know, so this is an incredible amount of work that she did, and I'm just trying to do my best to get the word out about it. So I can't wait to listen to it. My only regret is that I actually don't already have an Audible account. I get um, audiobooks usually through the library through the e uh, checkout. But um, I will get an Audible account and download this book for you. Kristen. Yeah, you can register for free. You don't have to sign up for the membership program where where you have to buy a book every month or whatever. Cool. Um, and, All right, let's get to it. All right. Sorry about that. Today, we are discussing the book, The Jane Austen Book Club. So even though we, in theory, are have we, we have our own Jane Austen book club, now we can immerse ourselves in a world where there's a parallel Jane Austen book club. And the conceit of the book is very cute, right? It's mm -hmm. um, the characters join a Jane Austen book club, but their lives in a way parallel, as, our, as all of our lives do, their lives parallel in some ways Austen stories. And I, I enjoyed the book. I don't think I enjoyed it as much as Maggie did. Well, I thought it was cute, but I also yeah. thought it was a little, honestly, I was telling Bayard this because he was asking me what I liked about it and what I thought about it. I, the number one disappointment I have was that they didn't do a lot of really in-depth Jane Austen discussion. Yes. 
Yes, it's all about these people and their backgrounds. And then the actual tantalizing transcriptions of their actual book clubs are so short. And that's so frustrating. No, and I want to know no. what they have to say about these books. And instead, we got to hear about. totally what... agree. And I guess we're coming at this from more of like a Jane Austen lover's perspective. So <laughs> that's probably not a normal response to reading this book. Like, I wish there was more Jane Austen analysis. <laughs> you know, should we just go buy a critical a book of essays about Jane Austen's works? Perhaps. Yeah. But this woman, I did um, enjoy. It. I did enjoy this book. I thought it was. It's a good like beach read. I actually read it at the beach. beach. I was on vacation oh. with my aunt in Hawaii, um, and I read it at the beach, and it was a perfect beach read. Well, that sounds perfect with a mai tai in one hand, and the the author of the book I should have mentioned. Her name is Karen Joy Fowler, and uh, she really captured that this cultural, you know, uh, need for Jane Austen. She wrote it in two thousand four immediately the, the rights were optioned and it became a movie in 2007. Um, and the movie is also very cute. And I just want to start off by talking about Karen Joy Fowler's Austin Chops, which of course she has an incredible depth. If you look up the book and you see the um, picture on the cover, I know Maggie has a Kindle version, so I don't know if your cover has hmm, a I don't know, actually, but it's a, it's a basket of strawberries. It's just a basket of spilled strawberries. And what does that immediately oh. make your mind jump to but Emma with the famous yeah. strawberry scene? And, um, and, and the book is uh, incredibly, obviously written by someone with incredible love and respect for the mm-hmm. canon. I would say that as well, yeah. And it's a very clever approach. And I thought we would um, sort of get into the meat of the book and talking about it by first introducing who the characters are and talking about, because it's, it's cutesy. It's not overdone at all, but each character. It could have, it could have gone off the rails really. It easily. could have been way overdone, but each character has a Austin parallel storyline and some characters have more than one. Right. So Kristen, when you are done with introducing the characters, I do have number one big question. I want to ask you about the book when you're done with the characters. Okay. Or when we're done discussing the characters or whatever. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Don't let me forget then to circle back. Oh, you know me. My delight. I won't hesitate to jump <laughs> in. <laughs> so um, there are six people in the book and, you know, because there's six Austin novels, the first um, people I want to introduce are a mother and daughter pair. The mother's name is Sylvia and the daughter's name is Allegra. Um, and they are the sense and sensibility of this book. Because what has happened is that Sylvia, the mother, her husband has just left her. And so, of course, she and her daughter's emotional reactions to the father leaving are very, very different. Sylvia is very practical. She's the Eleanor. And she processes her her feelings in a more quiet way. And Allegra is the incredibly over-the-top emotional Marianne who can't necessarily understand what's going, where her mother is coming from. And uh, they have sort of this disconnect where she's extremely emotional. So I'm trying to remember how Allegra is described. I think it's something along the lines of she either despises something or is in raptures. She's hot or cold. There is no in between. She just jumps from one extreme to the other. Exactly. And there are, one of the things about this book that we were we that I think 
possibly is a uh, detriment to it, even though it's obviously that author is very talented. Much of the book is spent on um, these characters and their childhoods. Mm-hmm. So we know a lot about them because we are learning. There's a lot of backstory and, and I like a good flashback as much as anybody, but um, really we do hear a lot about Allegra and her childhood and her impetuous ways. And, um, and so, yeah. And now my mind is blanking on an actual anecdote about her. What do you remember one? Um, no. But anyway, she sensed the sensibility about her father leaving. She's Marianne about her father leaving, but she's also Marianne in that she has just left her girlfriend as well, which is a very interesting subplot. Um, But she's having to deal with the incredible sadness of, you know, having broken up with her girlfriend and her father leaving her mother. And at one point, I think the most poignant point in the whole book uh, Sylvia, the mother, looks at her daughter and thinks, why can't you just let yourself be happy? Yeah. And so they have the Eleanor versus Marianne frustration where it's like, why can't you just get over it kind of thing? Um, One of my favorite moments with the two of them is I think it's actually Jocelyn making the observation. And this is uh, Sylvia's mm-hmm. best friend, Jocelyn. She comes over to the house and she says it looks like someone's been wallowing in the <laughs> living room because she sees all these CDs stacked by the stereo. And she says, I'm pretty sure it's Allegra because Sylvia doesn't seem the type to listen to Fiona Apple. <laughs> um, yeah. And I thought that was really funny. And she also, which is something that we talked, when we talked about Marianne and her selfishness, she's, Jocelyn thinks, you know, it's very selfish of Allegra to be wallowing at this moment because her mother is going through yeah. the dissolution of her marriage. And so Sylvia has to take care of Allegra. Yeah. Yes. I'm. When she is feeling this pain so much more acutely. Oh, yeah. And and just like Eleanor, in her suffering, she has to tend to someone else's suffering. And Allegra has moved back in with her mother to try to be there for her emotionally. But their dynamic is such that this is just one more thing for Sylvia to deal with. Um, I think the difference, though, is that Allegra, I mean, she knows that her parents are divorcing. In Sense and Sensibility, Marianne is just completely oblivious. (laughs) Uh, But that might even make it work, right? That might, I'm sorry, make it worse. Yeah. Well, and Sylvia, um, the, uh, her husband who has, who has left her, his name is Daniel and what they're going to do, and I'm not going to talk too much about it, but they're going to play out the persuasion narrative where he's going to try to come back to her at the end. So Sylvia is part of Eleanor and Marianne and she's part of persuasion. And as Maggie said, there is also another character, her, her best friend, Jocelyn, who is the one who's sort of trying to wrangle everybody into this book club. And Jocelyn's the first character. Jocelyn was my favorite. Was she? Jocelyn's my favorite, yeah. She's a a great character. Um, She's trying to put the book club together in part to get Sylvia to meet a young man. And that is obviously the Emma plot. Um, But it's so clever what the author does because you know what happens at at the end of Emma. Instead of being a matchmaker, Emma is happily matched herself. So, of course, that's going to happen with the book club. She picks out a guy for Sylvia, and she winds up getting with him. But this is where the Pride and Prejudice storyline comes in, because she picks out a guy who sort of, she happens to meet by happenstance. He turns out to be a science fiction lover at a science fiction convention. But she doesn't care. She pulls him into her Austin book club because she wants her, you know, him to get with uh, Sylvia. This guy's name, name, by the way, is Grig. 
G not Greg. G R I I G G G G right. Greg. Greg, the science fiction fan. And you know, even though Jocelyn invited him, she herself has disdain for science fiction. She's not interested in it. And so I that- loved all of the flashbacks involving the sci-fi convention. Oh yeah. I go so to sci-fi con- sci-fi and fantasy and pop culture conventions. And I just thought, and every time maybe I should say, I guess Greg and Jocelyn are my favorites together because every time he would talk about sci-fi novels and stuff like that, I like my little nerd heart <laughs> would be happy. Yeah, they are. That's, it's a very cute uh, plot and, and, you know, with the end, you know, in their Pride and Prejudice plot, they're going to have to come to a common ground. Um, oh, what was I going to say? I completely agree. Let's talk at length about how they meet and everything because it's so cute. It's one of the things I really remember clearly about. I've read this book, of course, was more than 10 years ago. And certain parts, I could tell you what happens almost word for word because that's how good it is in some parts. It really sticks with you. And certain scenes are so cute and so clever. But um yeah, okay. And so they're a Pride and Prejudice thing. And then to quickly t- introduce the last two characters, there is the most annoying character you can conceive of. Uh, <laughs> her name, this is a little unfair. Uh, so Karen Joy Fowler, I think, was trying to do a P- Fanny Price comparison where she introduces a character whom nobody can like because yeah. he was the reader really dislike her and everybody really dislikes her. Uh, her name is Prudy. And get it, like she's a prude, huh? She's pretty and she's a French teacher and she's always dropping these French phrases into her conversation. And she like, pronounces oh, I speak French. Oh, she oh. pronounces passion as passion. passion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, and pretty. The, poor pretty. I mean, she's just so obnoxious and blind to her own ridiculousness. And she um, is you can also ask anybody. She's the just most ask, ask, gosh, I have a great sense of humor. Just ask anybody. She she actually um, is Fanny Price in that no one likes her. Uh, we get it, Karen Joy Fowler. And she's also <laughs> a little bit of uh, Mariah Crawford. Um, uh, what am I trying to say? Mariah Bertram, not Mariah Crawford. She's a little bit of um, Mariah Bertram in that she is with a guy she doesn't deserve. He's handsome. He's wonderful to her. He's so kind and generous and just this great guy. But he's never going to set the world on fire. You know, he's just a, a, a normal guy. Yeah. And uh, I actually found Prudy to be the weakest of the characters, too. Yes, in her storyline's the weakest. It, it, yeah. yeah. The weakest arc. It never I really felt bad for her. But I think that makes her even successful as a character, the fact that I felt bad for her. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Like, oh, you don't have, I'm sorry, you don't have a really good arc. Like, that's too bad. <laughs> <laughs> like, like thinking of her as if she something. was a real person. Like, I wish you'd had a little more time to develop. Sorry, Prudy. Oh, wait, but if I really didn't like her, why am I thinking of her as a real person? Yeah, she's, so even in that, it's successful. Yes, I, I would agree. And uh, I have, <laughs> in a way, um, in a way, she's a success for, she's a catastrophic success or something. Anyway, uh, <laughs> no, that's not what that means, but in, in a I sense. I don't know what you're trying to say, but I don't I agree with you. <laughs> I can't come up with a success through failure. She's failing up, failing upwards. Um, okay, but cool. She, that's, that's actually what I'm going to, that's my motto, my new house words. Success <laughs> through failure. <laughs> yeah, we're leaning in, not failing up. Um, yeah, house Riley. Success. Uh, yeah. Oh, House Riley, failing up, growing strong. We do not sow. <laughs> failing upwards. 
that's not going to make any sense to people who are not Game of Thrones fans. So sorry. Everybody for that. knows. Now, oh, come on, it's in oh. the zeitgeist. It's in the zeitgeist. That's right. So anyway, she's thinking of having an affair with a high school student who's really hot. Well, she's not, okay, let's. I want to. I want to make this clear. She's not. I mean, she's not like planning or thinking of having an affair. It's just this one kid in her class just same shamelessly flirts with her, and she's just like, ugh. And she just talks about how they're sur- surrounded by hormones all the time. But I don't want to yeah. make it sound like she's a creeper because I don't think she comes across as a creeper. No, you're right. You're right. She just has this sort of mental fantasy. God, why yeah. am I so like a prudy def- like defense attorney? I'm I don't being, even really like her, but it's crazy. I'm being a little hard on her. I did overstate. I did overstate. And you know, the part of the reason I hate this character so much is because it's oh, an wow. affront. Okay. It's if and it's I shouldn't say hater. I don't. She's fine, but I feel affronted in that Mansfield Park actually gets sort of short shrift, I feel. Yeah. In this you just love once again it all comes down to your love of Mansfield Park. Yeah, that's right. And and just feeling very protective of it and not being happy with the way it's it's dealt with. But we could talk about that. And then the last character, her name is Bernadette. And she's an older woman who is a hysterical, great character. She's awesome. And to me, I don't know how you feel about this, Maggie, or if you got this vibe. Because to me, rather than being an Austin character, she's sort of like a trickster version of Austin. Hmm, um, interesting. Well, they all have, in the beginning, they talk about how they each have their own Austin. Yes, everybody has their own Austin. And that's so true. Um, I can see that. I also see, I don't know. I want to say Bernadette. Bernadette always goes on and on about how much she loves Austin's comedic secondary characters. And that's what she is. Yes, she right? is. Yes. Yeah. But also- she is a comedic, but she is not, a, unlike many of the comedic secondary characters who are terrible people, she's not. She's delightful. Um, but there yeah, she is, is. She's just like, take the things you love about comedic secondary characters and just make them nice and not Bernadette. However, there is also um, a section on the really the Pride and Prejudice section where um, she becomes she she tells a story about herself, but unlike with all the other characters, she it switches into first person, and she's talk speaking in the first person authorial voice, and I just this thought that was a really interesting choice. And oh, and she also says so at this part of the book, and we need to go back and be chronological, but just to characterize this character further, the reason I thought she was sort of a trickster Austin is that they're all at this uh, swanky dinner. And she's it's sitting a fundraiser, to, right? It's like a local fun, fundraiser. Yeah, it's a library fundraiser. Right. She's sitting next to an author, and she's interested to hear what he say. It says for half half a second, but then she realizes he's too young. He had nothing to say yet. He's a moron too, also. He is, but the way it's phrased, it makes it very clear yeah. that she's like, "Oh, he's too young. He hasn't lived. He has nothing interesting to say." But oh, in a I, nicer, in a nicer okay, way. Okay, so let me just say, what is uh. That guy, that singer now, Sean Mendez. This is how I feel about Sean Mendez. It's totally unrelated. Feel free to cut it out, Kristen, but this is how I feel. That cat is like 16. <laughs> so he writes these songs that are on the radio about love, you know, I know what you did last summer and all this stuff. And it's that one that stitches, you know, that song was everywhere. Oh God, I hate that song. 16. He's probably 18 or 19 now hell does this guy know <laughs> about love they're catchy <laughs> songs 
and they're good a lot of people like them they actually are good songs but yet some reason they come on i'm like mm, no come back to me in five years come back to me when you're ed sheeran or another random reference when you're watching little mermaid and ariel goes to her father and she says i'm 16 years old i'm not a child anymore and you're like girl you need to sit down the older I get, the more I have these perspectives on young and in love stories where I'm like, all these people are making terrible decisions. Like Fiddler on the Roof. Yes. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. Did we talk about this already? Fiddler? I was just talking about we this. We have with not. We're like, back, let's circle around to Fiddler on the Roof as an outtake, I think maybe, because we kind of got off the rails. Yeah. Okay. It's my fault. And it's my fault. But I just want to say that I am totally agree with Bernadette. At some point when someone starts talking and you realize that they just don't know what they're talking about. Yes. Um, and I, I've been I've been li half listening to you and also looking for um, the quote that Bernadette says about this dude, this author. So Do you want me to look for it? Because I can search in my um, Kindle for Beat Farmer. Oh, good idea. Remember the guy like writes yeah. the mysteries about the beats? <laughs> the guy's a beat farmer. Oh, Bernadette. Yeah, there you go again with the secondary characters. Like this, I think that this... Um, this author, she really gets and pays tribute to Austin's. Ah, here well, it is. Oh, here we here go. Yep. Sugar beet farmer. This is hysterical. Um, so this is the description about the, the, the young author. It says, he was a very young man to be writing books already. Bernadette could tell right off that he hadn't lived long enough to have much to say. His sugar beet farmer would be thinly drawn. Yes. <laughs> It's true. It's true. So um, let me, and this is related to what you were, it's actually is related to what you were saying um, about how the narrative switches to the first person narrative just for Bernadette's story. My question to you is, Kristen, who is the narrator of this book? Yeah, she seems to be a member of the book club, but never says anything. She says us, says we, but she also is omniscient. Yes. She is, and she knows. And then, but then she talks about what she knows as if the book club would be discussing it. Like, as you said, like um, in the story about Greg and his, you know, which we'll, we'll talk about, but there's a story about his, his childhood. And I think she said, the narrator says, if we had known this in the book club, we would have enjoyed this story yeah. or something. So it's almost like omniscient book club character. Who, the book club is a character, she's right? She's the soul of the book club. She is the soul the narrator of the book club. Is, well, so and, oh my god oh my god oh my god this is the perfect time to talk about this and this is something i love so much before they have their first book club right before it starts greg the guy comes and yes. oh it's god. apparent that he has read no austin so this is his first time reading austin and the narrator says we were going to have to wait until he said something and then we were going to have to put him in his place yes <laughs> There's a lot of really interesting kind of um, gender dynamics going on with Greg in this. Book it wasn't club. even. It wasn't even gender. I didn't even take it as gender. I took it as. Oh, oh, I did. Oh, really? No, I took it as Jane Austen fans. Right. I think if if Greg had been a girl, they would have still been like you're a neophyte oh, in the first time. Meeting, I would have. Hey, let me be totally honest. If I went to a Jane Austen book club and there was a person there who never read Jane Austen. I would have been laying in wait <laughs> to pounce on the first wrong thing that she said and immediately contradict it. Because, because here's, okay, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, please go. 
But the thing why that they, which I think is hysterical and is true, the reason they judge him the most is because he shows up with the like all in one special edition giant caught all of the novels in one book and they're absolutely. just like Ugh. Absolutely. Who does that? Who would dare buy this commercial? It was like the Gramercy edition. I forget what they call it. Yeah. And I got to tell you, you have to like flip through these eight, this 800 page tome to try to find something. I got to tell you this too. And and I, I'm sorry because this is actually from the movie. It's not in the book. So I'm sorry that it, I laughed hysterically. In the movie, he comes in with this huge tome, like you're saying, and they're like, what? And he's like, well, I didn't know. I thought maybe they were all sequels. So (laughs) (laughs) I I will confess that I thought I didn't know we were, well, we didn't really talk about it. I watched the movie when it first came out, but I have not seen it since then. So it's been at least 10 years since I saw the movie. Um, So I haven't rewatched it, but maybe we can do like a Jane Austen book club movie short discussion at some point yes um so i remember being different they kept a lot of emily Emily blunt is prudy yeah which just seemed weird it is weird they did take emily blunt's storyline uh as prudy and give it an an actual arc so there's beginning i think they did that because she's the hot one right because people don't want to see middle-aged women carrying a movie. Thank you very much, Hollywood. Even though she's the least interesting character. This is honestly what I believe. They cast someone pretty. I mean, Emily Blunt's a great actress. But they cast someone pretty and they've got to bulk up her part. I didn't see it as that. I just saw it as the story goes nowhere in the book. So they had to actually make it go somewhere. Like it just peters out. <laughs> um, and they, they don't. They don't, well, they actually do give her, I, I would think, equal screen time with uh, Jocelyn and Sylvia, the two sort of women in their 50s who wind up with romantic storylines. Um, one thing I'll give the movie credit, credit for, they did keep those characters as women in their 50s. Yes. Which I thought was great. I do remember that. But um, um, here is the, here's the passage um, about Greg at the first book club. She introduced us all to Grig. He had brought the Gramercy edition of the complete novels, which suggested that Austin was merely a recent whim. We really could not approve of someone who showed up with such an obviously new book or someone who had the complete novels on his lap when only Emma was under discussion. Whenever he first spoke, whatever he said, one of us would have to put him in his place. (laughs) (laughs) It does seem all Austin fandom right there. Yeah. It does seem to me that, okay, so I think that the narrator is the book club itself, like you were saying, the yeah. soul of the book club, but it seems like Grig is always excluded. Yes, he is. When it refers to the book club, when the narrator refers to the book club, to me, it seems clear that the narrator is referring to the women in the book club. I completely agree. Okay. Do you think the narrator is supposed to be like Jane Austen's spirit? Not her like well, ghost spirit, but like the spirit of Austin. No. Hand wavy thing that you can't see, but it's very spiritual. Huh. No, I really, I don't. Um, I don't think it aspires to be that. I do think okay. it aspires to just be a very well educated <laughs> narrator. <laughs> I'm going to so- be honest. I spent maybe half of the book trying to decide if I liked the narration or hated it. 
Yeah, she's not always that likable, I agree, because she does make value judgments on some of the characters. It's not even that. It was just that it was confusing. I spent the first chapter trying to figure out who the narrator was. And so that made it hard to get into. And then, but this is what's so brilliant about that. I, I didn't think of this as the spirit of the book club until you said it. I didn't think of it until you said it. Oh, no, no. Oh, okay. All right, cool. I think um, we arrived at that. And now I like it. I like it a lot more now that I, I understand it. And literally until we, what was it, 10 minutes ago, we're talking about it. And both <laughs> said that. I didn't understand what the narrator was. And now I think I like it. And now that I, I totally, understand it. Now that I, now, now that I understand you, I'm much more um, willing to go on the journey of reading about the characters and their backstories and who they are and what happened to them while they were 10. And the reason is because when you have a book club, people bring their whole selves and their whole lives in their own perspectives into the book club. Mm -hmm, So that when everybody's getting together, they're a a combination of all of these histories coming together to allow them to dialogue on something that is the same print in each of their hands, but they see it through very different lenses and in very different ways. Which is one of the reasons why book clubs are interesting, I think. And it's just like how you and I both approach, like we have obviously Mansfield Park, we approached very differently. Yes. Um, And we, like when you read um, these stories, your perspective on them is different depending on um, who you, oh, and this is why at the end of the book, one of my favorite lines in the book was saying, um, we started reading Austin and now we're all dating or married. <laughs> and, but it's okay, you know, it's okay because in three or four years, it'll be time to visit Austin again. Yes. Like it, changes. it changes. The book doesn't change, but the reader changes. Oh, I forgot about that. And you're so right. And um, even in the, uh, I think it's okay for us to talk about this now. The other brilliant thing about that and how you can see Austin differently, uh, depending on the context, is that at the end, Allegra makes a a magic eight ball. She buys one, takes it apart, puts in it. I mean, this is impossible, but it's it's a cool concept. Puts in a little hexagonal die with Austin's sayings and makes it a magic eight ball. So you shake it. And a sense from Austin comes up and that's supposed to give you, be oracular as Austin so often is. She is an oracle Mm -hmm. or she is a guide. She is your spirit guide. She is your morality. And um, it's just so, so great. And so cute the way it's executed in the book too, because the same thing keeps coming up on the eight ball every time they, you know, how eight balls are, they're kind of annoying. They don't always change their response. Um, So what is the quote that keeps coming up, Kristen? It is not everyone who has your passion for dead leaves. (laughs) 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 They have to interpret that. Uh, Go on your trip in the autumn. (laughs) I'm going to guess what that means. (laughs) Oh, it's such a brilliant idea. And that was the part of this book. And I have to say, I, I have a lot of notes and a lot of passages marked out in this book, but only from really like the last two chapters, because I wasn't really connecting with it until the last two chapters. And I think that I will definitely read this book again um, because I enjoyed it, but I will skip parts. Yes. There's definitely some flashbacks that I'll be like, eh. And so, you know, so I mean, me- the present day narrative to me was much more. There were a couple of the flashbacks. I found Allegra's flashbacks actually with her girlfriend, Corinne. Yeah. Um, yes. Interesting. Yes. But there are definitely part. And uh, 
when Greg, when we flash back to Greg and Jocelyn first meeting. But if I reread, there will definitely be parts where I'll be like, yeah, you know, just get flipped past that I know that where part. you're going with this. I know who this character is already. And, and, yeah. and, and, and the Corinne storyline is so interesting, especially when paired with the other writer that they talk about with the beat farmer mystery guy. Um, yeah. Because uh, mm-hmm. there are two different stories in there about writers because Allegro's girlfriend, Corinne, is also a writer and she commits an unforgivable sin of asking Allegra to tell her stories from her childhood. And Very taking private, like her biggest, um, like her most shameful moments and things she most regrets kind of things to me was how it. Yes. Yeah. 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 Her very personal things. And then Corinne writes them as though they were her stories and submits them to magazines, which is un And hides it and lies to her about it, basically. It's like, oh, I can't discuss what we t- say at um, our writer's workshop. You know, it's so very personal. I can't, I can't talk about it. I don't want you to read any of it. <laughs> yeah. And Mo- so I told Bay about this. I told Bay about this, about this as a betrayal. And he was like, what's the big deal? No one would connect it with Allegra. And to me, I couldn't believe that he didn't see how this was such a huge betrayal of her confidence. I was, I, yeah, well, and I don't know, maybe he was thinking if Corinne could have just asked Allegra, can I use that story? Because the artistry is in the way you write it. I mean, that's what, you know, where your talent right. comes in. Um, but I would have felt hugely betrayed also. And I don't know if you have, um, well, you were going to talk about Mo before I so rudely interrupted you. No, there was another movie or something where this happens where someone's... Um, anyway, Mo also uses Bernadette's story in mm-hmm. his book. And so as in Northanger Abbey, which is a meta-commentary on novels, Karen Joy Fowler is also sort of laughing at novelists and the, the, the way they have to go for real life to draw inspiration and, you know how it's it's just like poking fun at herself almost I thought yeah. is what it was doing so she was pulling that part of Northern Abbey in well, we were talking we were talking about oh yeah so Allegra and Corinne and um we were talking about this betrayal crap so anyway oh, should we move on to something else can we move on to let's talk about when I said Jocelyn was my favorite character can we do that yeah. let's talk about me um <laughs> So Jocelyn, I think, is actually, a lot of people would find her a very difficult character to like. She's super judgmental, right? Right. Super judgmental. But you know what? So am I, whispers. So am I. When Grig is late, she (laughs) sees it as a fundamental disrespect of her time. Oh, yeah. Totally agree. When they run out of gas and she's completely bitter about having to walk 10 blocks in high heels because someone couldn't be bothered to check their gas. Oh, yeah, totally agree. Yeah, I just and she was single for so long. Um, and she found in her she had a lot, she has a lot of love, but it's very difficult for her to be close to people. And she expresses that through her love for her dogs. Yeah, um, I mean, I don't raise dogs, I do love dogs, but I just found the fact that she'd been single for so long and was happy in her single life. And I, I, I found a lot to relate to her. And why it was so difficult. I did find her flashbacks to be horrifying. Oh, yeah, because um, she's had a lot of... And they're the first ones. She's basically... She's sexually... Not basically. Well, I mean, she's sexually assaulted. She's um, had a lot of bad experiences with boyfriends that sort of set yeah. her on a course of it's better to make other people's matches and then just not have to confront the challenges herself because she 
has had these bad experiences, but right. she's obviously an ex- extremely beautiful woman as well, which is its own kind of, I'm not going to say like uh curse, but it can lead to its own problems and it can make you withdraw um, and be uh, protection, try to be protective of yourself. Um, and well, the first men she ever had experience with treated her as objects. Oh yeah. As an object. Um, but what I liked about her is that the author made very clear and Jocelyn as a character made very clear. It was that she liked being single and the way they, she meet, was a spinster or anything like spinster. she just, she liked her life. You know, she enjoyed her life. And like people we love come crashing into our lives in bizarre ways. And certainly <laughs> the way she meets Greg is extremely memorable. Um, do you want to talk about that? Cause it's just so cute. Sure. So Jocelyn is at a dog breeder convention, which sounds amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And at the same hotel, there is a science fiction convention. So she starts talking, she like sees the sci-fi people and she's totally judgmental, of course, but it's funny because I'm kind of part of that world. So to have, see how she looks down on them to me, is just amusing. Um, But she ends up talking to a gentleman, not Greg, to another man at the bar. She thinks he's part of the dog breeder convention. He thinks she's part of the psychiatric convention. They're having this discussion about this race. Well, he's talking to her about a race in a sci-fi book, but she thinks he's talking about dog breeds. And dog breeding, <laughs> where they have this long conversation, and at the end of it, she's like, "What were we talking about?" Because <laughs> Greg joins in, and then some jerk faces from her that she knows, kind of like, "Oh, who are these guys?" Blah blah blah. But it just got their meat cute. And well, what will, I was thinking in the rom com, the, the like the scene that stuck in the elevator that I've never forgotten, and what I was thinking of is that she's in the elevator going yeah. up to the car. And uh, he's there too. And she notices him. She notices his very long eyelashes, which is always the trait he's described as having. Maybe he's born with it. (laughs) Yeah. And um, Mm -hmm. then two people get on the elevator and they're pierced and they're goth and they're, they look and their arms are crossed. And one of them's wearing a studded dog collar. So (laughs) Jocelyn gets excited and she says, oh, my dog has that exact same collar. Which is or, no, what she actually says, and not to just be like, actually, no, but what I, she says is, I have that same collar at home. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of ambiguous where, oh, it's, wait, I hope she doesn't get the wrong idea. Same <laughs> <laughs> collar at home. And, and uh, she's very, Jocelyn, they do not react at all. And she's like, oh, okay. And then Rude. off the elevator, Greg is like, takes the liberty of explaining. He's like, oh, they were invisible they're vampires and when their arms are crossed they're invisible they're you know, part of the, yeah. the sci-fi convention yeah which if but you're not initiated into that kind of role playing i'm sure as as yeah. it was for jocelyn was very disorienting <laughs> well i like the part where she sees the same girl later kissing making out with a guy with her arms crossed behind his head and she's like i wonder if you're still invisible <laughs> That's if right. someone else's tongue is down your throat, even if your <laughs> arms are crossed. I thought that was funny. I just like, she's a very dry wit. Yes. I just thought she was very funny. And she and ends up with a sci-fi nerd who, and I just, I do really love Greg. I think Greg is just, he's a really great character. He's and almost he's, like Tilney-esque, but he definitely also has that, he makes decisions that boggle your mind and make yeah. you think that he is like running out of gas. It's like, Why? 
or he doesn't bother cleaning his car and things like this to people like Jocelyn and me we're like we think like what's wrong with you um he didn't he say that his car was at the the fuel gauge was actually broken there's There's, always a reason yeah there's always a reason yeah yeah um and the the so the fundamental clash between them is that he wants he really is into her and she's awesome but what he wants Mm -hmm. is for her to also respect his intellectual interests and to acknowledge him as you know an intellectual partner somebody who could you know just it hurts your feelings when someone you care about does not take any interest in what you are interested in and so he gives her some ursula Le Guin, which is the author he suggested to to her as what her favorite was when she was trying to pretend all of a sudden she had to pretend she knew science fiction in that <laughs> bar scenario so he's like say ursula Le Guin. so later he does give her some Le Guin. And he keeps asking her throughout the novel, I believe, like, oh, have you had a chance to check those out? And she's like, mm. and you know, she doesn't intend to like, you know, she nobody. Yeah. people who aren't science fiction, people see themselves as like, it's not for me. Like, oh, I'm sure they're really nerdy and weird. And I don't want to get involved in that. Now, and- Kristen, what does that remind you of? <laughs> Who else can we think of a fandom that has a reputation for being <laughs> nerdy and exclusive that other people look down on? Now, when people have first impressions about the Austin fandom, uh, they are we are all suffering from the same thing. So Austin and sci-fi both have the people are prejudiced against one or the other or maybe both sometimes and so we both suffer from that but it's funny because we're in the austin bubble we don't ever think or i don't often open myself up to things that i'm not sure i'll like and Mm -hmm. can sometimes be like uh and that's uh that's on me you know and that's let me also say that austin and sci-fi slash fantasy also are in a unique position now where they have become mainstream because yeah. of the movie adaptations of Austin books and the success of things like the Marvel movies, DC movies, um, and, you know, of course, uh, like Game of Thrones, going to point out as an example of that. Oh, Big Bang Theory. Yeah. Nerds are cool. Nerds are cool. And Austin is cool. You guys probably don't know this. Um, why would you? But um, Maggie actually speaks, uh, has spoken in, I think maybe more than once, at Nerd Night, which is a oh, DC yeah. area, like like um, evening of speakers, and they're nerdy. <laughs> I did speak at Nerd Night, and for the third year in a row, um, my friends and I are presenting at a convention in DC called Awesome Con, which is a you know, sci-fi, fantasy, pop culture, comic convention, um, where we're discussing uh, diversity in gaming. Uh, So we're going to give, we're going to do a panel um, presentation and discussion for the third year. We just found out we got selected again. Yay. Um, So I have my fingers in many different fandom pies. Yes. And we don't put down other people's fandoms. And that's the, that is the lesson Jocelyn needed to learn because. Yes, that is so, yes, that is exactly right. Jocelyn needs, and she ends up going, this is one of my favorite parts. The, reason, the way you find out that she and Greg are now an item is that they go to a sci-fi convention together. And, and it's very it's cute. cute. And she reads the books and she loves them. She reads those two books he gave her and she yes. loves them. Yes. And if we ever do talk about the movie, um, sorry to bring it up again, 
there was no, there, there is one point in the Jan Austen book club the book where I burst into tears oh Kristen and there is a part in the movie where I burst into tears but there are two different parts and what is the, the part in the book tell me the um, book. I can't tell you because we're not there we can't we have to talk I have to talk about it in its own time oh okay wow but I'm in like the movie, because they, they don't really show her going to conventions with Greg. They show the actual moment when they hook up because, of course, you need that big kiss. Yeah. So in the movie, she starts, they get into a fight. She's like, okay, you know, do I like this guy? I don't know. She starts reading the Le Guin. She stays up all night reading it. Oh, yeah, I remember now. She's in this, this huge, ridiculous uh, coat, um, you know, this cozy, like, big sweater that's, like, hanging all the way down to her knees. And uh, she goes out in the middle of the night to try to find the next book in the series, and she can't. So then she drives to Griggs' house, and it's at 5 a.m., and she just sits in front of his house in her SUV, and she's sleeping against the window because she can't wait to tell him how much she loved them. And he comes out, and, and she's like, I loved this book. I loved this book. Oh, my God. And that's that's – I – it was so freaking romantic to me because I, mm-hmm. being being acknowledged as someone else's intellectual equal to me is like what I always crave. And it is so, you know, it's so great in my own relationship that Kevin has been able to come on to the Austin train and be like, I respect your interests. I don't find them something I want to laugh at. I get it. You know, it's interesting. Like that's more important to me than almost anything because of the life I've sort of led of being this laughingstock. Um, but I think it's also, well, first of all, you're not a laughing stock. But I think it's also really, rem- I mean, we all have read, haven't we all read something where we stayed up way too late because it was so good? Yes. It's just one of those things that feels so real, you know, yeah. where you just cannot wait. I have been on, okay, talk about not making fun of people's fandoms. There's this, I mean, they're really bad series um, of books that I love. They're YA, like vampire series. It's not Twilight, it's something different. I was on a work trip and I took, like three of them with me, but they're YA. So I burned through them. I made my fellow employees that were with me stop by a Barnes and Noble. <laughs> so I could buy more YA vampire books. You don't want to tell I was like, no, are. we got to stop. We got to stop because I need to go buy more <laughs> of these books. And the, the, the judge I was with, because this is my job, who was now my boss. <laughs> I was like, I'll be right back. I just got to go to the Barnes and Noble. I got to go get more vampire fiction. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you don't want to tell us what it is. I'm trying to even remember the name of it. The author is PC cast. Uh, Give me a second. I'll look it up. I, there was years ago that I read them and I think I actually sold them all the most recent. It's not the Um, vampire Academy. Is it? It's not vampire Academy is different, Um, but it's similar. It's vampire boarding school, basically house of night. Okay. So if you enjoy cheesy, not particularly well-written, but still for some reason, cocaine-like YA, (laughs) check out the House of Night series. Uh, It's set in Oklahoma, because you know, Oklahoma, Tulsa, hotbed of supernatural activity. Right, right. Um, And there's a lot of, I don't know if it's offensive or not. There's a lot of kind of Native American mythology (laughs) wrapped up in there. (laughs) But I'm telling you, I could not put these down. (laughs) And so I just love that kind, when that feeling is evoked, I'm there. Like, I I know what that's like. Yes. And so that's, they're the pride and the prejudice and, and they get together. 
and we can also talk about the um, other love story in the book, which is what made me burst into tears, which is, and let me just get my notes out. Are you talking about Daniel and Sylvia? I am talking about Daniel and Sylvia. So as you remember, Daniel um, left Sylvia. And <clears throat> he it never um, made clear exactly why he, he left for someone else, right? Yes. For a woman, like a family lawyer or something named Pam. I don't know why I know all these details. Anyway, so he leaves Sylvia for Pam. So like the night, a couple nights before he leaves Sylvia, there's this weird episode where he's, he's not sleeping. He's up in the middle of the night watching the rain and Sylvia sort of pads out in the middle of the night. She's like, what's going on? Are you okay? And he goes, Sylvia, are you happy? And she's like, what? <laughs> yeah, come to bed. And she's just like, you know, tired. <laughs> morning, and uh, she doesn't get it and she's just not engaging with him emotionally which is what he wants and so he he sort of explains later uh that he just felt like it was his job to make her and allegra happy and he wasn't doing that and he couldn't take the pressure anymore whatever that's why he left not really for this other woman and he didn't know that at first but now he after being away he feels bad and wants wants her back blah 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 so he sort of has his midlife crisis and comes to understanding that he really does want to come back. He should, So I forget whether he writes, hold on. He writes her a letter. I forget whether he writes her a letter first. He writes her a letter and then he shows up to the Persuasion Book Club. Oh yeah, okay. So he writes her a letter on page 232. And he, you know, he leaves it at the house. He's like, Sylvia, and it's the Persuasion Letter is what it is. It, it parallels yeah. the persuasion letter. And he even says, it's kind of cute with Karen Joy Fowler writing it. He even says, I've been unjust, weak, resentful, and incon uh, inconstant. Incontinent. Wow. Not incontinent. Inconstant. No, <laughs> and um, which of course paralyzes the, the language. Did I say paralyzes? <laughs> Parallels. <laughs> language in persuasion where it's like unjust i have been weak in a resolute mm -hmm. i've been or whatever it is i, yeah. I can't quote that letter word like some people um I not mean, why are we even doing this podcast Kristen? <laughs> <laughs> you can't quote this letter but then <laughs> he comes to the book club he comes gray-faced and shaking and holding persuasion to the door unannounced and unpreviously planned to the door of the book club having encountered persuasion you know during this other incident. And so here's what I wrote in my notes. Cause up until this point, I was just like, eh, here's what I wrote. And I wrote it to Maggie, but I'm sharing it with you because my notes were all like editorial to Maggie. Right. I said, did you fucking burst into tears when Daniel comes to the door with fucking persuasion? Because I didn't care about any of this. And then I lost my shit. Uh, no, I was actually just really mad. Oh no. <laughs> well, there's a reason to be mad, but I was mad. And then the way it was described, okay, let me, let me go to page 234. I appreciate the part when he says, I will read persuasion. I will read any and all Austin, whatever it takes. Right. I'm a sucker for people who are repentant too. Like, you know what like, though? He's a douche. I'm sorry. No. Well, I don't right. know. I did not. I, uh, I want to be the type of person. I want to be the type of person who sees it as romantic and this great gesture that he comes back and does the whole, we live in a cynical world, cynical, you know, like the whole Jerry Maguire speech. I want to be the person who's into that, but 
he left his family. I, I don't respond well to the male ego midlife crisis bullshit story narrative. Well, it's weird because I hate responsible for your happiness and I was blah and I had to look at He left his family. Well, it's weird because I just like the Wentworth so much and you just like Daniel so much. Right, but it's very different because he and Sylvia were married and had four children. I know. Isn't that weird? Why Why it, is that yeah. the case? I mean, we're talking about someone – to me, Wentworth isn't complete. I, I understand what the author is doing, but to me, it's a completely different situation, right? Here's this, um, well, and also, Anne was the one who broke that off. No, and I'm not saying you're – I'm not saying you're wrong. You're actually yeah. right, like morally – um, and I was right up there with you hating Daniel until this one sentence, which maybe is just testament to Karen Joy Fowler, or maybe says something about me and how I'm a sucker for people who need comforting or something, willing to forgive if people seem sad or something. I don't know. But here's the passage. Uh, Sylvia started to argue on behalf of her adored Charlotte. That's Charlotte Lucas. <laughs> uh, she was interrupted by the doorbell. She went to answer it, and there was Daniel. He had a gray, nervous look, which Sylvia liked better than the lobbyist's smile he had tried immediately to paste over it. I can't talk to you now, Sylvia said. I got your letter, but I can't talk. My book club is here. I know, Allegra told me. Daniel held out his hand, and in it was a book with a woman on the cover, standing in front of a leafy tree. Allegra's copy of Persuasion. I looked it over in the hospital. Anyway, I read the afterword. Apparently, it's all about second chances. That's the book for me, I thought. He stopped smiling, and the nervous look came back. The book in his hand was shaking. It softened Sylvia. Allegra thought you were feeling forgiving, Daniel said. I took a chance. She was right. (sighs) Okay, let me tell you. The lobbyist smile. It is. No, no, no. Let me say this. The lobbyist smile, and then he, er, the gray and nervous look, and then the face smile he pastes over it. That's what destroyed me. I was like, oh my God, he wants to come back with her. Oh my God, it's her. Let me say why it doesn't work for me. And the reason it doesn't work for me is that that scene is basically the end of the, is at the very end of the book. Yes. The next part of the book is an epilogue where he and Sylvia are back together. If you want me to be on board with this, you need to make the scene where he shows up at book club in the middle of the book and spend the rest of the time showing how he is able to atone and gain well, I, forgiveness. I think we but can to just say- jump from there, I mean, it's hard for me, just what we're talking about coming from people with their own experiences. It's just hard for me to reconcile and then he's just welcomed back. No, I think we can infer that all that stuff happened, but this is just the starting off point where right. you can- Right, no, definitely we do. We infer that it happened. But for me, I want to see it. If you okay. want me to be happy that he's back, <laughs> because I actually thought it was pretty cool that Sylvia was discovering a lot of things about herself yeah. and her happiness on her own. Yeah. I thought that was actually her arc. Yeah, yeah. You know, that she discovers- what kind of person she is when she's alone and she becomes happy. And she tells him, Daniel, I am happy when she is alone. And then to have him show up and come back and her take him, it just seemed to me like, well, like what's the point? Because then it's his story. It's almost like he, his wishes and his desires 
have co-opted her story. And it's the story about how Daniel got his groove back. <laughs> yes, you're not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I actually, I'm, and I don't want to make it sound like I hate that ending for her and them because I don't. I don't hate it. I just don't really have a positive feeling towards him when he shows up. I don't know. It's really hard to describe because I don't hate it. I don't love it. I don't feel positively towards it or towards him as a character. It just, it's just something, I guess I just there, don't respond to that. There are some details. I, mean, so I can't think of any other way to say it. It's just not a narrative that I'm particularly There are some details on board in, the, with. in the book um, that uh, made me like him so much as a person and think, oh, why would you leave your wife? And almost almost made me assign some mitigating effect factors because he seemed like a such good guy such a good guy like yeah, i will say that the name that he has for jocelyn yeah when he he hugs jocelyn at the hospital he will still go to jocelyn's house and do things for her he still comes to sylvia's house and fixes things well, as long as you live him, here sylvia tells him to fuck off which is which actually i, I was on board with but yeah. um when uh pridey jocelyn's first dog when he dies at 16 and they drive to both Sylvia and Daniel drive to the vet with Jocelyn to have him put down. And then they all just like weep in the car. Yeah. Incredibly. Like he's, he's, he's good people. He, he's made a, I think, stupid, yeah, just, I think the problem, Oh, the big problem is for me is that, like I was saying, Daniel's story overtakes, it becomes Daniel's story and not Sylvia's story. And I think my main problem is, Oh, I know exactly what it is. he, removes her agency a lot remember the scene where jocelyn says make a list of the things you hated about him so that you can focus on those and remember why you're happy he's gone and one of the things that she thinks is oh you know i'll tell him what i want for christmas and he'll say you don't want that <laughs> or you won't use that and he gets her something else and it turns out he was right all along and she loves this thing <laughs> to me that is actually really gross behavior yeah, that's not great. And to for her to be like, fuck off, don't come in this house anymore. He's like, as long as you live here, uh, it's I will be take my care of this. I, this yeah. will be my house and I will take care of it for you. Yeah. It's and then she like, says, fuck you. Yeah, he like infantilizes her and takes away her agency a lot. And it just, I think that's what really kind of, he's a good guy, but maybe he has nice guy syndrome, if, that, if you know what I'm talking about. I don't know. A lot of the things that he says just to me are going to, gross and by the way for the benefit by the way for the benefit of the listeners when i'm dropping these f-bombs the saying sylvia told him to f off it's in the book oh she didn't say that yeah does say so uh, that's not me being profane that's in the book yeah Um, well i mean we are profane but um but uh you know not so but i don't think sylvia is ever more eleanor sylvia is never more eleanor i think than when she and a leg well she's getting ready to go to the fundraiser gala thing and she's trying on different outfits and Allegra's helping her. And Allegra says, would you be okay if I don't, oh, go? I don't go? Oh my God. And says, no, I won't be okay. I need you there. How can you abandon me right now when I'm going to see your father? I need you to be there. But of course, Sylvia didn't actually say any of that. Yeah. Oh my God. Uh, that was such a Marianne moment and it made me so mad. Oh, yeah. it made me so mad. And, and it was so beautifully written. And like you're saying, she thought it, but she didn't say it just like, just like, Eleanor. but the narrator said, Sylvia said, so you think she's saying this and you're like, good, tell her, like, you got to tell her. But of course she didn't say any of that. 
it was all in her head. No. And that's at the same part. Sylvia's a different character. Sylvia's a much more difficult character to like than Eleanor, I think. And maybe it's because we never actually get into Sylvia's head. It's all through this narration, which is a third party. Yeah. I like Sylvia. Narration. I always liked Sylvia. I didn't have any problem with Sylvia. Yeah, you did. Um, I, I was going to say that is know. the exact part, too, where Sylvia's frustrated with Allegra, where Corinne, Allegra's uh, girlfriend who wrote her stories, uh, Corinne calls the house and leaves a voicemail message for Allegra. Um, saying, you know, I want you back, please, Allegra, or whatever. And Sylvia can hear the message and Sylvia can tell that Allegra is not picking up the phone. And that's when Sylvia gets angry at Allegra and thinks, why can't you let yourself be happy? Or why are you doing this to Allegra? Allow allow Allegra to be happy. Chase Allegra's having this. And it, it's sort of a motherly thing to think. But, but she wants her to go back to Corinne. Well, I know, but, that, but Sylvia this doesn't is why, know. This is another so, thing. No, this is me. that thing. Sylvia doesn't know about what Corinne did. But yeah, it's, it's a very motherly thing to try to want to push your daughter into a relationship or whatever based on what you yeah. think is good for her without knowing the whole story as well. Yeah. Um, but it is also like Eleanor sort of like, you need to let yourself be happy. I mean, she's not right. This current should not, I mean, uh, Allegra should not go back to Corinne, but that, but that was, she does. No, that was another surprise. She doesn't. She Allegra does. Just, she goes back with Corinne. No, she goes with that. The very end. Yeah. No, 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 no girl. In the epilogue, it says what? that Corinne is, she is back with Corinne. Something with Dr. Yep happened in between and she, um, Allegra won't say what's going on, but she, and everyone is saying like the relationship has a short, if I'm wrong, I will be very surprised. Cause I could swear. I was like, what, why is she back with Corinne? Oh, I, I think about Bernadette going to Costa Rica, which was just crazy. That woman is crazy. She moved back to San Francisco and back with Corinne. None of us expects this to last. Daniel told Sylvia the things Corinne had done and Sylvia told Jocelyn, and now we all sort of know. It's hard to like Corinne much now. It's hard to have a good feeling about the relationship. You have to believe in fundamental reform. Allegra, you remind yourself that no one can push Allegra around. Whoa. All right. I so she goes I back to her. Shocks. But Allegra, I got the impression that Allegra also conspired with Daniel to have him show up at book club. She gives him his, her copy of persuasion, right. Or he gets it in the hospital. Yeah. But to me, I think that she was like, come over at this time. Yeah. yeah. I do think that Allegra tried to get, that's exactly. She parent trapped them. She, she parent did. trapped she them. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I have a lot of trouble with those two relationships with Sylvia and Daniel ending up back together and Corinne and Allegra. But again, I have strong feelings about these characters, which to me is a mark that this author did a good job of creating them as real people. And when you're married for that long, I mean, you've built up a family. Yeah, that's true. That's another thing. Like, I don't have that experience. I don't know what it's like. I can't imagine. Um, I don't know if this author has been married or divorced or what the deal is, but it's easy for me to sit here and be like, oh, no. You can't take him back, but they were married for what, like 20, 30 years, have four children together. I mean, I, I, I can't say. I just know that as a reader, it kind of turned my stomach. Yeah. I mean, there are times that when it makes sense to get back together and for someone just to say, I was wrong. I see how wrong I was. I won't ever make that mistake again. And you can sort of trust that they will never make that mistake again. And then there are other or times as Prudy when would say, totally say la vie. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Prudy. <laughs> 
Prudy, this character, if we haven't made it clear, is constantly breaking out into French. Uh, and then what's hilarious is that when Daniel does come back and he sits down at the book club, he says something in Spanish to make a mm-hmm. point. And then Prudy says something uh, pointed to remind him. She, she didn't say we don't all speak She's- Spanish. She, she just says it in French, right? She says it in French to remind him that they don't all, all speak Spanish. Spanish. <laughs> Prudy is very blind to her own failures. Like there's that joke where ask anybody, is she saying ask anybody? Um, mm-hmm. Where she always is sort of saying, oh, I have a great sense of humor. Ask anybody. Um, yeah. <laughs> there's this cute part. Well, her husband, Dean, is such a sweetie. And there's yeah. this funny part where she comes across, she's reading this Cosmo or whatever they had at their house, and she comes oh across. Oh, my God, yes. Oh. Where he's taking the quiz to see <laughs> which sex in the city character are you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know what it is about him, but Dean kind of reminded me of Kevin. Yeah, Dean was a lot like Kevin. He's better. Okay, good. He's, he's much better than me. He's better looking. He's unfailing. Oh, He's a Kristen, good dancer. Stop. He is unfailingly nice, but I don't think he's better than you. I think that yeah, he's he is. Have you. I'm the worst. I'm the worst. So Kevin's all super like into Austin because like I am, but I have never figured out the NBA basketball thing. And to this day, I can't do it. And it's not because it's not great. I'm sure it's great. I just, I'm deficient. I can't figure it out. I can't watch the guys with the ball. I can't pay attention to it. Um, Kristen, that doesn't make you a bad person. It's, it makes me a bad. It doesn't sense. make it doesn't make Kevin bad. What? No. Okay, let me just his... say this: you moved to Boise. Well, Boise Ram. is the most amazing. I'm not going to say that. I mean, I shouldn't say this because I don't want anyone else to move here. But Boise is one of the most amazing places. Uh, yeah, but when you packed up your life and moved across the country, you didn't know that Boise was going to be the most amazing place. I had an inkling. You did it because he had this job opportunity that he wanted to take, and you're supportive and wonderful. Well, no, if I didn't want to do it, I wouldn't. <laughs> I'm just saying, don't sell yourself short. I try not everyone to. Listen, everyone listening to this podcast can tell that you are amazing. Well, okay, thank you. Lucky to have you. I try not to use the I moved to Boise for you sort of. Oh, I would. Oh, girl. I would do it to get everything I want. <laughs> no, I don't want, I don't want to be unfair about it. Boise I'm, for you. <laughs> because I moved here too, and I wanted to move here too. I mean. It you is wanted a- to leave me? No, that was the hardest part is leaving, leaving you, leaving all my friends, but mostly you. I don't you. know if I believe you. Anyway, you'll have to show up at my uh, doorstep during a book club with a red rose in your lapel <laughs> and make your apologies and see if I take you back. Me. All right, let's get back. Let's get back to, uh, back to business here. Yes. Uh, why don't we, or did you have more you wanted to say? Cause I was thinking this might be a good time to talk about some of these readers questions, readers yeah. guide questions for discussion. Uh, let's see. Yeah. So the book is really cute because it's a book club, a book about a book club and it has book club discussion questions at the end, which is amazing. And when you read them, they're so personalized and so funny. Um, they're the no, questions that the characters themselves are asking about the book. About the book. or you know, So it betrays what they think is important. And um, <laughs> we, uh, yeah, so we should go through. And there were just a couple of questions that I wanted to pose to uh, Maggie. Oh, okay. One of them is, okay, this is the best one. Hit me. Do you, I'm ready. This is the entire, this is the best one. So I'm blowing the best one first. Do you ever wish your partner had been written by some other writer 
had better dialogue and a more charming way oh. of suffering, what writer oh, would you choose? <laughs> Uh, no, I don't actually wish that my partner was written by a better writer. I think that his method of suffering is pretty normal. Uh, you know, he like hurt his finger the other day and he like wanted to go to the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he had, he had a stomach ache for 10, I swear to God. Oh my, I hope he's not listening to this in the other room. He had a stomach ache for 10 minutes on Friday night and was like, I think I might need to go to the ER. <laughs> and you I don't was, know how bad it was. You know what I do? And I was like, okay, <laughs> why don't we try giving you some gas X first <laughs> and see what happens? <laughs> and he fell asleep like 20 minutes later and was fine. <laughs> well, you knew. Um, I know. Yeah. No, I don't wish my partner was written by a different author. I think that my life is pretty dramatic enough. I don't think I need to be in a, uh, I definitely feel that sometimes my secondary characters have an Austin-like quality to them. Um, usually Your I mom feel like is I, sort of Austin-esque. I do sometimes feel like I live in a sitcom, <laughs> but I think I would do better actually as the wacky secondary character myself. No, I disagree. Really? I disagree. I think you're a strong protagonist. Oh, well, thank you, Kristen. Although I feel like this is a thing with the wacky secondary characters. You have to use them lightly. Like you can't have um, that person show up in every episode with their catchphrase because then it gets annoying. Right, right. You can't be like the Kimmy. Kimmy can't be the star of Full House. Exactly. Exa oh my gosh. Perfect example. <laughs> or Skippy from Family Ties. <laughs> he can't get his head stuck between the like stairs. Um, banister no, yeah. uh, I, I appreciate you calling me a strong protagonist Kristen that's very polite I, very kind no, no I don't think it's polite I, I that's what I believe I think if someone as an you know we're just saying authors are just writing things from real life there's an author writing around walking around having encountered you I think they would think you know what this is a really strong start this is going to, this is going to capture people. On the <laughs> and who knows where the story is going to end. This I don't is know it. where it's going. Hopefully we'll have a happy ending. You know, don't miss the happy endings. Like no. Sylvia says, That's you right. have to remind yourself not to miss the happy ending. That's right. Well, um, then I hope that we're all written by Austin. And um, that would be nice. Wouldn't it? I don't know. I feel like um, Austin's too good for me. I, I, I wish Austin could write me with more of a, um, sense of duty and like rigidity in that so I wouldn't have oh, to you want to be written you actually want to be written by Gilbert and Sullivan they're all about duty Gilbert and Sullivan. You, you don't know what I'm talking about so Gilbert and Sullivan Pirates of Penzance Mikado Light Opera model of a modern major general exactly there is a West Wing subplot involving Gilbert and Sullivan where someone says like it's uh, it's Penzance so it's Pinafore it's the one about duty and then someone says they're all about duty <laughs> duty but duty d-u-t-y I, I would say okay write me like Gilbert and Sullivan but I can't sing that fast so probably not um that's fair okay let me I, ask you a question no, no no I gotta tell you though I asked this question to Kevin oh. I said do you ever wish I, I had been written by some other writer blah 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 had you know had better dialogue who you know who would you choose and I had just about 15 seconds before booed and hissed at a bad joke he had made <laughs> um, so then I was like oh ha ha honey let me ask you this question 
And I said, uh, what writer would you choose to write me? And he goes, anyone else. <laughs> As his revenge. I do, you know what? I, do, I wish I could be written by Austin because like I said, how I see myself is similar to Lizzie, but sometimes I cross the line to mean. I wish I didn't do that. So I wish I had someone with her with her way of work, with Austin's way of words and her, her preciseness of language, precision okay. of language. Yeah, there you go. I'm just, I'm going to work precision of language. I, this is what I wish I had. Yeah, that would be great. I mean, yeah, I right? we all aspire to be Jane Austen in many ways. Um, Except for the dying at 41, but yeah. Yes. I only got four more years in me then. <laughs> Here's a question. Okay, oh, you I, said you were going to ask well, me, me a question. Yeah. Let me ask you one. We'll take turns. We'll take turns. So here, this is one of Jocelyn's questions. Is it rude to give a person a book as a gift and then ask later if the person liked it? Would you ever do that? Yes, that is rude. And yes, I would do it. Because I get so excited. I get get so excited about books and I get so excited about them. And then I force them on other people. Like um, fangirl, I totally forced fangirl on my friend. Oh my God, yes, yes. Uh, listeners, gentle listeners, if you have not read Fangirl by Rainbow Rowell. All right, continue, Kristen. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Did you, were you going to say something? Oh, that's all. I just said read it. Like, go oh. get Fangirl by Rainbow Rowell. It's amazing. Read it. it. Your voice cut out on read it. So it was just like, if you have not read it, and then nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I thought oh, I, I said, it. read it. And I stopped talking. Okay. Read I, it. I just, yeah. Um, yeah, but I did. And then I know she started reading it, but then I never heard anything else. And I was like, oh I God. also think it's rude. And again, sometimes I actually ask people cause I want them to tell me to my face. They haven't read it yet. <laughs> I think it's, <laughs> no, I think if you give somebody a book and you know, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't ask because they may just not have wanted to read it, but you know, you know, that's, that's up to them. Maybe they're going to feel bad. Maybe they're walking around dreading you asking them that question because they yeah, know. Probably. But I want to talk else. about it with them. No, I know. That's the best part. I want them mm-hmm. to share in it. Yeah. But no, it totally is rude, but I totally do it. Okay. Yeah. Your turn. It's even worse with your own book too. Like if someone asks to read it and then they, you don't hear anything, you pretty much want right. to stick your head in an oven. <laughs> But anyway, so um, I'm just kidding. I mean, that's the way it was at first, but now I don't care. And now it, it doesn't phase me at all. Like being an author for a little while and you're like, yeah, whatever. If you liked it, that's great. If not, that's, you know, like you're just, you get over it. So mm-hmm. um, anyway, do you think it adds to a book to know about the author? Do you care if no author photo is included? And do you assume the author looks like nothing like her photo anyway? <laughs> I usually don't pay any attention to the author's name or their picture. Um, There have been only a couple times where I've read a book where I made an assumption based on it that the author was a particular gender. And then later I will be surprised to find out I was wrong, but that's super rare. To me, it doesn't usually matter. I mean, if I found out that a man wrote, you know, the feminist manifesto or like that would be a little weird. But for the most part, it doesn't matter to me. If I'm reading a book, I really like, I feel like I'm in very close communion with the author. And Mm -hmm. um, I do have, if I really connect with it, I do have a thirst to know more about them and to, you know, to see their, 
picture and just to have an idea in my head of what their life is like. For some reason, I need to imagine them. I, I need to. Well, I would agree with, I would definitely agree with you after I'm done with the book. Yes. But when I'm reading it, I don't feel the need to know that information before. Does yeah. that make sense? Yes. For I example, agree. Rainbow Rowell, I read Fangirl, was obsessed and wanted to find out why the hell her name was Rainbow. <laughs> and surprise, her parents are ex-hippies. So it's like, okay, well, that makes sense. But I did read about her because I wanted to know who she was because I wanted to be her friend. Okay, so, uh, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. So this is one that kind of gets to the heart of our podcast mission statement. So this is one of Greg's questions. Jane Austen's books were initially published without the author's name and tagged an interesting book, which alerted the reader that romance was involved. If Austen were publishing today, would she be considered a romance writer? I don't think so. I don't think so either. I think that would be I, literary fiction. There are a lot of yeah, romances in I literary agree. fiction. But not – well, first of all, I definitely don't think she would be considered like a bodice ripper. No. Obvi. No. Um, but I don't think she would be chiclet either. No. No. She, she I think that maybe a, maybe a short-sighted publisher would try to market the book as if it was that. Yeah. Any of her books. Well, realistically, but I don't think what would happen is that she would get the book back with notes and it would say, okay, uh, there was too much showing and not enough, enough telling in your first chapter. Mm -hmm. uh, the pacing uh, was way yeah. off. Uh, you're never going to get published. Please stop sending, sending stuff to me. Uh, yeah. Because the uh, opening chapters of Austin's books are incredibly brilliant and I'm so glad they've been passed down to us because you can never get published with that kind of pacing today. Except um, for maybe Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, you know, that's true. Pride and Prejudice is a very zippy, a very zippy start. But yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, um, it's crazy how short, people have very short attention spans today. And that's why I'm so glad that we have these, these books. Mm -hmm. She wasn't forced to edit her I mean, she was just a natural, incredible editor. So every single sentence is important. Um, Especially when you're handwriting, right? With a quill, like you got to yeah, know what you're can doing. can you imagine? I mean, she was just no. a natural genius of, of editing, but they didn't have the same cues. And um, so you, you, she never would be published in, unless there was a very, very patient uh, agent who's willing to sit down and read with it. I could be wrong. I no, I think you're right. But I don't think she would be considered a romance writer. I really no, don't. Oh, definitely not. No. Not even, I don't even think Pride and Prejudice would be considered a romance. It would be, it would just be like a literary fiction. Literary fiction. Like you were saying, if you walked into a Barnes and Noble, you would not walk to the romance or chiclet section. Yeah. You would and walk I, I, to literature. One thing is so surprising, other than Pride and Prejudice and Persuasion, I don't feel any of the books have like a super sexy heat. They even talk about yeah. it in... Um, Jane Austen Book Club, how they're not feeling Emma Knightley and they don't feel that. Oh, and you and I, I felt like you and I had that same. So I yeah, will say, despite the fact that I did complain, kvetch, as my mom would say, at the beginning that they didn't have a lot of analysis, almost everything they talked about were things that we have talked about. Yeah, yeah. Especially when fine. they talk about the son in Persuasion um, who died and no one really cared. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the poor Dick yeah. Musgrove. And yeah. how that is actually a big problem and is sad in the book that they talk, they are like joking about this guy, the narrator in persuasion jokes about Dick Musgrove's death so, yeah, and sometimes. how no one loved him more than he deserved. I mean, that, that book has such an acidity to it in some, 
yeah. random randomly it'll pop up so but and i'm trying to remember who it was maybe it was bernadette who points out there is no heat between Knightley mm. and emma mm. and i feel like that's that's a legitimate criticism of that right yeah. And you know, like that's a match that makes sense and looks good. until, well, we did talk about there and at the ball is when you, she sees him as a sexual being. Yeah. Yes. Yes. You and I, and that's what I, that's when I felt it, but, but yes. And so I just think they weren't, they, they didn't pick up on that. Maybe we're just smarter than them as book club, but oh, um, totally. I mean, that's not even, I think uh, Karen Joy Fowler <laughs> writes into the, her character's dialogues in this book, things that are, are misconceptions or positions mm-hmm. she doesn't actually agree with. Um, And one of the things that I thought was so interesting is that when they were discussing Emma, uh, Bernadette, who is knitting, uh, says that the book, Emma, describes Knightley and Emma's marriage as unexceptionable. Yeah, unexceptional. And Bernadette says, oh, I bet in Austin's time that just meant, you know, ordinary, blah, blah. That's not what it meant. No, that's not what it meant. It meant you could not take exception to it. It meant excellent. Right. So I was like, is that just a... Um, because she's thinking along these lines, like, oh, it was an ordinary marriage. She's sort of assuming, making an assumption about what this word means, which I think is yeah. a danger to do when you read Austin and you come across a word you do not know. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you a question. This is not one of the book, the reader's guide questions. This is one of my questions. Cause now all of these questions we've been asking each other are percolating in my Maggie brain and the Maggie brain spit out the question. What would you think? Um, Jane Austen writing a murder mystery would be like because I think it'd be fucking amazing. <laughs> um, right? Can you yeah. imagine if she ever if we joke about like murder at Pemberley or like Lizzie and Mr. Darcy solve murders, CSI, Pemberley. But I think Jane Austen would have been an amazing mystery writer. I think so too. Her understanding of people. Yeah. And, her and, and misdirection. Language. She has, she is so good at misdirection and that is key for a murder mystery. I think that she would be an amazing mystery author. All right. So we'll end on the note of Jane Austen, murder mystery writer, Jessica Fletcher. Yeah. You know, she could have been, um, oh gosh, what is, uh, the, 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 um, the woman who wrote Poirot, the like most famous British mystery. She could have been the Agatha Christie of her time. <laughs> uh, we were murder out. mysteries a genre back then? I don't even know. I don't know either. In I'm like not, 1815? I'm not sure. I'm not, I don't think I don't know either. either. Well, all I'm saying is that's too bad because those would have been this fantastic. would have been, yeah. That's uh, your fan pick, right? Emma is sort of a mystery, isn't it? That's true. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of... Well, I know what Arnie would say that there's always like a murder mystery <laughs> in every book, I'm sure. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so on that note, wishing we could read more Austin, as always, and wishing it could be a mystery so we could see how that was. Um, let's take a walk down to the Wheat Chief. Hello, Mr. Man at the Wheat Chief. Has the post come? Excuse me, excuse me, mister. Has there been any mail? Has the post run? No post on Sundays. Again, um, we had a very nice message from our listener, Colleen, who um, is from, of course, Toronto. Apparently, there's just a huge Austin hive mind of Toronto's, Torontoans. Um, 
uh, well, we, love our, we love our Canadian neighbors, that's for sure. Can we come to your country? Can okay, please? Will you help us across, sneak across the border in the dead of night? Like, you expedite the Austin fans to, to come into your country? Um, gosh. Yes. So yeah, uh, Colleen just wrote to say hi. She likes the podcast. She suggested that we uh, did do Bridget Jones' Diary or Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, which both oh. excellent ideas. Stay um, tuned. Yes, stay tuned. And she was asking also, I think, about the eligible um, Emma approved and, and that. So we have, yeah, we have a lot of stable. We definitely good need ideas. to talk about eligible for sure. I know you don't usually read mm. kind of modern day, but you've got to read eligible because it's part of also what is the Jane Austen project. Yes. Is that what that's called? You got, we're going to definitely, I'm tell, saying it right now, I'll throw that gauntlet down. We're going to discuss eligible because I also really like. Um, Curtis, whatever her name is, the the author. Um, I think we point also need two. to discuss the Lizzie Bennet Diaries. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, point two uh, that we have to talk about is that um, our reader, who you have heard, um, wrote a book also. Her name is Lona Manning, and she wrote A Contrary Wind, the name of her variation on Mansfield Park, which I have read and which I ex- now have finished and extremely enjoyed uh, especially for her facility with the language. Um, we are doing a giveaway for her book as well. So you can get all kinds of free things. We're doing a giveaway. We are planning to post on our Facebook page when this episode actually comes out, uh, just a post where you can comment and please comment with your favorite Austin quote or something, make up a limerick, whatever silly thing you want to do. But I would love to know your your favorite Austin quote and um, we will do a drawing out of a hat, essentially, and um, get in touch with you and send you a code so you can get a free copy of uh, Lona's book. So this is very exciting. I love that we're doing contests and stuff. It's just so fun. I know. Um, yeah, and it, it's not a contest of who has the best quote. It is just well, that's it's like the a price. Raffle. That's yeah, the price of it. Throw your name into the ring and you might get lucky and we might pick you your name out of a hat, but it's still fun. Like, yes. I, I don't know. I, I like having the interaction with our listeners, which yeah. is why I get so excited when you guys write us. Yeah, um, yeah. Anything we can do to interact with you, I think is fun. Someone is spilling the beans, by the way, because now we have um, over 6,000 listens and I believe it was only last month that we hit 5,000. And so I'm a little bit like, ah. Uh, I don't want the hate mail to come. It's all my mom. No, it's all my mom. She's, she's <laughs> it's all it's all your mom. <laughs> yeah, probably. In, um, in the Jewish network. <laughs> by the way, and you're welcome to write us. And by the way, when you do write us, again, it's first impressions podcast at gmail.com. Um, and that's where you can write us if you want a copy of my book as well. Um first impressions podcast right. at gmail.com. Yeah. Uh what was it gonna what was I just going to say? You were going to say you were going to tell them to do something when they write us. Include oh, something. Oh, please, um, please tell us how you heard about the podcast because I'm intensely curious as to how this thing gets out and about. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, we should also ask people to review us on iTunes and Podbean because yeah. that's what helps up your – no? Okay, never mind. Oh, I no, I was going to agree with you. <sighs> yeah, I agree okay, with you. If you think – how about this? If you really like the podcast, write us a review. If you don't like it, then don't. Because or we don't want <laughs> or let's take all the copies of the podcast and bury them in Yucca Mountain with the radioactive waste because I'm really afraid to get hate mail. I'm really afraid we're gonna get hate mail 
and or a dick take pic. the time to write hate mail i don't want to get like an unsolicited dick pic like oh come on that's i don't think that's gonna happen I and hope if it did not. i will track them down and kill them <laughs> no i'm just kidding oh god yeah, now what have i done now i've said that i I made myself the number one suspect um <laughs> you spilled the beans no i would be very surprised if we actually got hate mail i think it's more likely that a hardcore austin fan would write us and be like your opinion is wrong oh, on this no. thing <laughs> uh, and I don't know if that counts as hate mail. Okay, excellent. And um, yep, that's all I think I had. Did you have anything? Well, I think that we need to tell our listeners about the super special episode that we're hoping will be the next episode coming up. We tell. So we have heard your voices crying out for more Kevin and for Bay to actually make an appearance in the podcast. And when I say we've heard your voices, I mean that I've heard the voices in my head saying that this would be a really good idea. So we are going to get the fellas together and have a very special first impressions podcast episode where Kristen and I will actually not appear. It will be Kevin and Bayard discussing the film Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Yay. I'm so excited. I, no, I'm really excited, actually. So I think it's going to be hilarious. I can't wait to listen to it. And I like that we are not going to be part of it. It's just going to be them. Yes. So we can listen to They're just, yeah, it probably won't be an hour and a half long. It'll probably be shorter, but I, I think it's going to be really funny. Yeah. It'll be a nice, you know, change of pace. It's going to be so awesome. I'm so happy they agreed to it. I know, me too. Now we just have to make it actually happen. All right, everybody. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you soon. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.